0: I'm always startled when I see a picture of myself, how old I am. <laughs> how did that happen? And when did that happen? I don't know. As John said earlier, I am so excited to be here at VRBC because of my great love for this church, for all of you, uh, that came through my great love and friendship with, with Pastor Larry. Um, we were friends for 30 years. And um, many's the time that we got together and cried on each other's shoulders about all the problems that you people were giving us. (laughs) And that melded our hearts together and uh, became great friends. Larry came and preached at IBC. I came and preached here at VRBC. Uh, I consider you a sister church, and uh, I'm so excited to be here with you this morning. Um, I'm fascinated by the sermon series this is me, this is me. What if you were given the assignment to answer that question in front of a group of people? This is me, what would you say? I think it's a very important question. It's the question of identity. How do you see yourself? Who are you? And do you matter? The answer to that question can make the difference between a life of grateful assurance or of anxious self-doubt. I want you to live a life of grateful assurance because you know how to answer that question. Who am I? And are able to present it to others. This is me. So, Let's start off with a little question. See, see if you can guess the person, okay? I, w- I want to I read to you a quote, and I want you to see if you can guess who said it, who said this quote, okay? And um, if, if, you, if you can guess it uh, at the end of the quote, I'm, I'll ask you to raise your hand. Uh, and if you can't guess it, then I've got some clues to give to you who said it. And we'll see who the smartest people in this room are who can guess who said this quote. Are you ready? All of my will has always been about conquering horrible feelings of inadequacy. My drive in life is from the horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Now, don't blurt it out, but if you know who said that, just raise your hand. Okay. Uh, that's a pretty slim clue right there, just a quote. Okay, let me give you a couple of quotes. Um, Forbes magazine lists this woman, okay, are you picking up on the, on the clues? Forbes magazine lists this woman as the 45th richest self-made woman in the United States. She's worth $580 million. Okay, anybody know who it is? It's a woman, she's rich. <laughs> All right, I'll give you another quote. This very wealthy woman recently canceled a celebration concert tour of 84 cities globally because she became deathly ill. Um, I haven't, okay, okay, you don't, don't, don't say it, don't, don't say it just yet. Um, well, go ahead and say it, who is it? Is it Celine Dion? No! Okay, you d- 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 subtract 10 points from this man. <laughs> Who in the back? You, I saw a hand back here. Madonna. It's actually Madonna Louise Ciccone. That's her, Madonna. We all know her as Madonna. Does that surprise you? Madonna obviously has believed the world's lies when they tell her that her worth is determined by what she does. She's bought that lie just like a whole lot of us. And it has plunged her into a life of anxious self-doubt in which though, as she says, I am somebody, but I have to keep proving I'm somebody over and over and over again. Here's a woman that has a net worth of over $580 million who lives a life of anxious self-doubt because she has believed the world's lie, that her identity lies in what she does. How adequate she is in what she does. How above average she is in what she does. The accolades that she gets from what she does. This is the world's lie of identity. And it's a lie that not only Madonna has bought into, it's a lie that I bought into for a long time. It's a lie that many of you are buying into right now. It's a lie that the Apostle Paul bought into in the New Testament. And what I want us to do this morning is I want us to look at three things. I want us to look first of all at what this lie is, the world's lie. Concerning your identity Secondly, I want to look at what the gospel's truth is About your identity And then third I want to look at the choice that each and every one of us must make Every day About our identity Okay, you with me? First of all The world's big lie about your identity is this Your work proves your worth You are worth what your work produces. And by work, I don't just mean your means of sustenance, the way you make your money to live on, but how you define yourself and what you do that brings you self-esteem, that brings you accolades, that brings you promotions, that that earns you championships, that that builds your bank account. They come with straight A's on your report card. The world says that your worth is proven by your work. And of course, the converse of it is that if your work sucks, then you're worthless. Right? Madonna got so sick, she had to cancel an 84-city tour. Believe it's because the pressure and the heartache of feeling like her whole self worth was on the line made her sick. It'll make you sick. When I was nine years old, I had an experience that thrust me into this whole world of proving my worth by my work. I was nine years old, and I'm gonna give away a little bit about my age right now. That was almost 60 years ago. And I remember it like yesterday. I was nine years old, I was in the fourth grade. My father and mother moved from where we were living in West Virginia, We moved to Alabama, a little town in Alabama. And um, I was in the fourth grade, and we moved in time for me to start school in September. I was in the ninth grade. I mean, I was in the fourth grade, I was nine years old. (sighs) Have any of you all ever made a childhood move from the north to the south? From north of the Mason-Dixon line to the heart of Dixie? I was, from the first day on that campus, a little nine-year-old boy in the fourth grade. I was rejected by everybody in the school, except the teachers, all the students, as a worthless Yankee. I was nine years old. And I'm coming in here and going, well, no, um, my great-great-great-grandfather didn't ride with Robert E. Lee, but does that make me a worthless Yankee? In those days, almost 60 years ago, in that little town in Alabama, it did. It made all the difference. That was my identity. I was a worthless Yankee in the fourth grade. I spent a very miserable fall and winter in that little school in the fourth grade. I had no friends. Nobody would accept me. Nobody would reach out to me. Nobody ever chose me. I was completely outcast for all those months, from September right through about April. The weather got good, and they started letting us go out to the playground when the weather got good, and we started playing softball. Of course, the first time out on the playground playing softball, I was... uh, Chosen, choose up teams, I was chosen last. And then on the team, um, I was made to bat last because I'm a worthless Yankee. I'm still a worthless Yankee. But let me tell you something. When I got up to bat last, that first time out on the playground in the fourth grade in Greenville, Alabama, I got that bat in my hands. Pitcher lofted this big, fat softball up in the air and I can still see it coming. I can still see it, 60 years ago. I can still see it. And I waited for it and when it got to me, I stepped into it, boom, I hit it out of sight. I mean, this ball went so far that airplanes We're giving distress signals to one another about (laughs) flying objects. Come. I might be exaggerating a little bit. I hit the ball really good, and it went across the street, and they never found it again. And I I had a base-clearing home run my first time up to bat. Worthless Yankee. (laughs) We'll see about that. Next day, on the playground, they chose me first. And on the team that chose me first, I batted first. And when we went back in from our playground escapades, all of a sudden, people were coming up to me and I started making friends and I started getting accepted. Why? Because I hit a softball really hard. But to all those students in that class, my hit proved my worth. Now you would think that that would have launched me into a really happy period in my life and changed my life for the better. And it did in the respect that no longer was I outcast, I had friends and I had standing and, and I, I was accepted and, and, and that was all good. But it was, it was not good in the long run for my life Because for the next two decades of my life, until I was almost 30, I was driven by this toxic equation that my worth depends upon how well I hit the softball, how high my grades are, how how well I perform on the the athletic field, how my grades are. I can prove my worth by constantly excelling and succeeding. I was just like Madonna. I've become somebody, she said. Remember, I've become somebody, but I keep having to prove that I'm somebody. I keep having to prove it over and over again. Why is that? It is because... Work proven worth has a very short shelf life, right? Okay, little worthless Yankee, who's all of a sudden we're choosing you on our teams. You hit that home run last week. What are you going to do for us this week, right? What have you done for me lately? How have you triumphed lately? How, what have you achieved lately? And you get into the Madonna mindset of, you drive yourself crazy, you make yourself sick. You cancel a global tour because you're so worried that you won't be able to knock it out of the park like you always have. And the world and its philosophy is delighted because they've taken another one off the the chessboard. Someone else who will never live a life of grateful assurance because they believe that their work proves their worth, thus condemning them to a lifetime of anxious self-doubt all the time. It's not a good place to be. Yeah, this is the irony of this whole philosophy of the world that your work proves your work. Is that if... If you win at that game, you lose. If you win at that game, if you hit the home run, then you lose because it sinks you into this toxic mentality of always having to prove your worth and never feeling like you'll ultimately get there. And so ultimately you lose. Even if you win, you lose. And of course, if you lose, if you don't win, if you don't hit the ball, if you lose, you lose. So if you win, you lose, you lose, you lose. It's a bad philosophy. It's a bad game. Don't get into it. That's the world's lie. Your worth is not proven by your work. You want to know what the gospel's truth is about your identity? Here it is. The gospel's truth about your identity is that Christ's love proves your worth. It's not the grades you make. It's not the money you have in the bank. It's not the promotions. It's not the academic success. It's not the home runs that prove your worth. It's the work of Christ on the cross on your behalf that proves your worth. It's the love of God that proves your worth. Okay, so I have a picture of a little dog that lives at my house. Let's put it up, that's Annabelle. Now I'm gonna be very self-disclosing about this dog. Um, And I'll tell you right off the bat, for some unknown reason, Annabelle is my wife's dog and she hates me, okay? (laughs) We we acquired Annabelle, she's a little Cavachon pup. Alice fell in love with her on the internet. She saw this little dog prancing around up at the kennel up in Arkansas, some godforsaken place long way away. During the, the shutdown, she says, I have to have that dog. So I drove the rescue vehicle three hours up to, three and a half hours up somewhere in Arkansas, brought her back home and on the way back home, Annabelle bonded with Alice, uh, just fell in love with her. Alice was already in love with, with the dog. We got her home, and from day one, Annabelle has no time for me. She often barks when I come into the room where she's with Alice or something. She barks at me. And I say, look, I drove the rescue vehicle. I, I came for you. We've had her almost three years now. And I have, in those three years, fed her more steak under the table than you can shake it. I'm trying to bribe her. I'm trying to buy her love. She's just not having it. So this doesn't really have much to do with the sermon, but I'm just getting this off my chest, okay? (laughs) But let me tell you something about how much that little dog is worth. Okay? That little dog didn't cost that much. I mean, you know, it was an average price for a little puppy. In dollars, her worth, not that much. But because of my wife Alice's, like, over-the-top Head over heels love for this dog. I mean, she, she really. I mean, she she raised five children, and we have four and a half grandchildren right now. Uh, th- this is this is her child too. She loves this little dog just as much as all of our children and our grandchildren, and um, so much so that I wonder sometimes if Alice had been given a choice between me and Annabelle that I might not win out in that proposition. I've been married to her for 45 years. She loves that dog that much. So though her worth in dollars, maybe not that much, the love that Alice confers on her makes her worth easy, more than my house right now. Maybe even more than me. And that's how it works, you see, with love. Love, and especially great love, confers great worth on the object of the love. Great love confers worth on the object of that love. That little dog is worth so much because Alice so much loves her. Now, what if the love, what if the great love is infinite love? Would not infinite love conferred on the object of infinite love also confer infinite worth? It would. You can nod your head. Not a trick question. Did you know that you're loved infinitely? Every single one of you. Infinitely loved by God. And if infinite love confers infinite worth, then that means that every one of you who has received the love of God has been conferred with infinite worth. Every single one of you. This is the gospel. Paul the Apostle writes in Romans chapter 5 verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's all of us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God, watch this, shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. If Alice's love confers great worth on a little Cavachon puppy, the infinite love of God confers on all of his children infinite worth. Because the price of its purchase was the blood of Jesus. God's love is not dependent upon our worthiness. That's the, that's the best news I've announced to you today. God's love does not depend upon our worthiness. God doesn't say to us, I'll, I'll love you if, if, if you perform, I love you if you achieve, I love you if you make good grades, I love you if you hit home runs on the, on the, on the field. I, I love you if you do good work. God's love never depends upon our worthiness. God reckons our worth now by the blood of Christ, his son, which flowed to pay our ransom. I love Keith and Kristen Getty's song, My Worth is Not in What I Do. There's a chorus in their psalm that goes this way. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but what? In the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. Two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness, my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. Our worth was established by the blood that flowed at the cross. Not because of what we did, but because of what Jesus did for us, Christians now, we have a pressure-proof, shame-proof identity now. This is me. You want to know what this is me is? 1 John 3.11. The apostle writes, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called what? The children of God. This is me. I'm a child of God. That's my identity. I'm a blood-bought heaven bound child of God. Brendan Manning, one of my favorite writers, Catholic theologian, wrote many books, Abba's Child and others. Maybe you've read him. Brennan went home to heaven about two years ago. I read everything he ever wrote. One of the things he often said about himself, especially in his book, Abba's Child, he would say, I am a child of God. And my heavenly father is very fond of me. Your heavenly father is very fond of you. And that is what confers worth upon you. This understanding liberates us from the world's lie that we must ever and always keep proving our worth so that we can be chosen too. Glad news, my friends, is that because you've already become the greatly beloved and highly valued child of your heavenly father, you can ditch that life That Madonna life of anxious self-doubt for a life of grateful assurance. You don't ever have to feel inadequate again. You don't ever have to feel worthless again. You don't ever have to get back on the hamster's wheel of keeping on proving what you spent the last 20 years trying to prove. I was almost 30 before I realized that. I've been in full-time ministry for 11 years before I realized that. It's kind of important that I realize that. I love Frederick B- Buechner's writing. He's also with the Lord. But he's talking about this good news of our being loved by God, and his enthusiasm is just contagious. Listen to what Frederick says. He says, "Repent and believe in the gospel." Jesus says, "Turn around and believe that the good news that what we are loved." is better than we ever dared hope, and that to believe in that good news, to live out of it and toward it, to be in love with that good news, is of all glad things in this world, the gladdest thing of all. Now, I was an English major in college. I'm not sure gladdest is a word. But if Frederick wrote it, I believe it. The gladdest thing of all. Okay, let's review. What's the world's lie? Your worth is proven by your work. What's the gospel truth? Christ's love proves your worth. This brings us to the last question. Which one will you choose? You got to make a choice. You got to make a choice. How are you going to live? Between the world's lie and the gospel's truth. You got to make that choice. Every day got to make that choice. Chris Tigreen says it this way. He says, we can either be self-made or Christ-made, but not both. We can seek our own identity or forsake our own for his, but Not both. We can love ourselves or lose them, but not both. It's a constant choice, and it is. It's a constant choice. I think every day we have to get up and say, Who am I? This is me. This is me. I'm a child of my father what great love he has bestowed on me that I should be called child of God. And that is what I am. And my heavenly father is very fond of me. To release you then to live in grateful assurance as opposed to, oh man, I've got to go out there and perform today. Anxious self-doubt. You have no peace. Peace. Paul the Apostle formulates this choice in 2 Corinthians 5. Look what he says For the love of Christ controls us. I'm driven by the love of Christ, not by the pressure to perform. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this that one has died for all, therefore, all have died, and he died for all that those who live might what? No longer live for themselves. No longer be on the hamster wheel of constantly trying to prove your own worth for your own self-esteem. No longer live for yourself, but for him who died for their sake and was raised from the dead. This is the choice. Choose. You're going to live for Christ, you're going to live for yourself. You're going to be on the hamster wheel, or you're going to be joyfully serving out of a grateful heart. Here's what this truth makes possible, my friends, is that since we don't have to prove our worth by our work anymore, we can now work, we can now let our work prove our love for Jesus. Let our work be an expression of grateful praise to Jesus, not a desperate attempt to once again prove we're somebody. I said at the top that Paul the Apostle, I think, struggled with the world's lie a lot. I think in several of his epistles, you can see him batting back and forth with his his adversaries about all the stuff he'd done and all the achievements he'd made and you know, student of Gamaliel, a Pharisee of the Pharisee, all his, his shipwrecks, his snake bites, all, all the stuff he endured and the burden of the church. I mean, there's, there's passages in the epistles where Paul sounds like he's taking the Madonna line, you know, trying to prove. But not in Philippians 3. Philippians 3 is where Paul had his moment, I think, finally, where he realized what it took me Two decades to realize. And here's here's what he says in Philippians 3. And I'm going to read this in the message version. Paul says, the very credentials these people are waving around as something special, I'm tearing up and throwing out with the trash. All these achievements, all these credentials, all this stuff that makes me look good, makes me feel good about myself, makes other people want to choose me on their softball team. He says, I'm tearing it up. I'm throwing it out. Along with everything else I used to take credit for. Why? Because of Christ. Yes, all the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life. Compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master firsthand, everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant, dog dung. (laughs) I've dumped it all in the trash. So that I can embrace Christ and be embraced by him. He's set free. He's set free to serve a father who is very fond of him. And that's what it'll do for you too. That's what it did for me too. When I realized that my worth is not proven by my work but by the work that Christ has already accomplished on my behalf, it's like it set me free from the opinions of others. It set me free from others who called me names, other people who didn't respect me, other people that I would have wanted to impress to get ahead or get a promotion or to get a better grade. Set me free from all those expectations because now I just want to say thank you to a heavenly father and I want to perform my best work to an audience of one. I'm not driven by the opinions of other people anymore. Because God has already said that my worthiness is in the blood of his son. Eleanor Roosevelt once famously said, what other people think of me is none of my business. And I like that. I think, that's, I think that's what Paul has here in Philippians 3. That's what he just said I read to you. What he was basically saying is, what all you people think of me, that's none of my business anymore. I don't really care. I just care about pleasing the Lord. As a blood-bought child of God, infinitely worthy because of the price that was paid for our freedom... We now have nothing to lose and nothing more to gain. We're in like Flynn, baby. We're in. Have you gotten that down into your spirit? Have you made that choice every day? To go with the gospel truth about your identity and not the world's lie? I hope you will. I hope you will. Because if you do, and here's the irony, it's when we stop working for ourselves and for our own self-promotion and self-image that we actually do our best work. I, I don't want any of you to misconstrue what I'm saying to you here today about work. That you would think that I'm saying that your work, what you do, is it important? It is important. It's very important to God. It's why you do it that I'm on about today. But what you do is important. And the irony is that it's only when you get this understanding that Christ has already done the worth producing work for you that you can do the best work you're capable of for his glory. Did I say that right? Did you follow me on that? Many of you may know this about me. Everybody at IBC knows about me. I'm a golf nut, been a golf nut since I was six years old. So, you can imagine how thrilled I was last year uh, that one of Dallas's own, Scotty Scheffler, number one golfer in the world, won at Augusta National, won the Masters. That's Scotty and his wife Meredith. They live in Dallas. They're both dedicated Christians. And I just love what Scott, Scotty said the day he won the Masters that evening at the press conference. He was there with Meredith, and he, and he spoke into the microphone these words to the whole world the, as the new Masters champion. Scotty Scheffler said, the reason why I play golf is I'm trying to glorify God and thank him for all that he's done in my life. So for me, watch this, my identity, this is me, my identity isn't a golf score. It's like Paul saying, I've ripped all that stuff up. Isn't a golf score. Like my wife Meredith, and Meredith is the real driver in this day, man. She's, she's a power. Meredith told me this morning, if you win this golf tournament today, if you lose this golf tournament by 10 shots, if you never win another golf tournament again, I'm still going to love you. You're still going to be the same person. Jesus loves you and nothing changes. That's what Meredith said to him that morning. Then he went out and won. And then he concludes that evening, all I'm trying to do is glorify God and that's why I'm here. That's pretty cool, huh? Madonna, anxious self-doubt. Scotty Scheffler, grateful assurance. Which one do you want? You have to choose. Jared Barnett puts it this way. He says, when Jesus becomes our identity... We are set free to live beautiful lives of contentment, humility, belonging, and mission. Beautiful lives. Lives of grateful assurance. I've written a prayer today that we're going to put on the screens. And I'm going to invite all of you who wish to, to pray this prayer out loud with me as a way of responding to the truth of the scriptures that I've laid out for you today. You don't have to read with me, but I invite you to if you mean it from your heart. Let's pray together. Lord, you love me as I am unconditionally. When I fail, when I succeed, either way you love me and that's why I am somebody. Not because I demonstrate my worth by what I do, but because you defined my worth by what you did. You loved me enough to give your life for me. You measured my worth by your blood. That is why I'm somebody. No other reason necessary. Today, Lord Jesus, I gratefully receive your love by faith. Now, may I never try to prove my worth by what I do. Instead, with a spirit of joyful gratitude, may all I do be about thanking you, serving you, enjoying you, glorifying you, and most of all, loving you and others the way you have loved me. Amen. Thank you all.